Joel chapter 2, beginning in verse 28. Charles Dickens, the scorn, his scorned character, Ebenezer Scrooge, stated, It is enough for a man to understand his own business and not to interfere with another. Scrooge was being a Scrooge at Christmas. He wanted to be left alone. He didn't want to participate in community by helping the poor in this case. He was, wanted to be left to himself. And because of that, we know he was unhappy and lonely and a bah humbug to others. You probably know this intuitively, but research repeatedly shows that sharing life in community increases our happiness. Yet sadly, our society is growing more Scrooge-like. Whether the separation is self-inflicted, like Scrooge, or even worse, through exclusion from others, on a whole, loneliness is increasing. There was a study done in Great Britain, and the results mirror the plight of many Americans. Almost a fifth of the population in the UK say they're always or often lonely. But only two-thirds of people really feel comfortable even admitting that. And the problem is particularly acute among older people. Two-fifths of older people in the UK say that television is their main company. And you would think in a world where social media connects us with so many different friends, we wouldn't feel lonely, but the opposite seems to be true. Research on social media interactions shows that loneliness is actually more pervasive in societies and age groups where social media use is the highest. So loneliness, by choice or by affliction, is a real problem. And Christmas, though it's a joyful time, it can shine a magnifying glass on this experience. For if you're experiencing loneliness or separation before Christmas, that can be amplified or exaggerated during the Christmas season. So, instead of us saying, bah humbug, and moving on, Let's look at the scriptures. And thankfully, the ancient prophet of Joel says a lot about inclusion in community. For the problem of separation is not a new problem. In fact, it is very, very old. It's a very, very old problem. It's nearly as old as humanity. And the profound truth is that the healing that we need is deeper than any human relationships. Joel He's speaking on behalf of God. He declares a future of unfathomable unity and community that will forever solve the epidemic of loneliness. And that directs us to our main point today. You should be able to see it on the screen up there. It comes in two parts. God has come to his people, chapter 2, 28 through 32, but you haven't seen anything yet, chapter 3. From the perspective of Joel, the prophecies he spoke about all existed in the future. But for us today, we look back and we look forward. In part one, we look to the past. God has come to his people. And in part two, we look to the future. We have not seen anything yet. So I know it's been a little while, so let me help you recall the theme of this book from the last time. In his book, Joel focuses on the day of the Lord and its nearness. And we saw that the day of the Lord is an event, but it is an event with many parts. Many parts that increase in intensity until the climactic end. The day of the Lord, you can picture it like this, is a whirlpool that occurs when you drain your tub. The cyclone starts wide, but it culminates at a point as it exits the tub. 
There's increasing intensity and then the end. In addition, the day of the Lord is dreadful for some, but it's a longing for others. For the day of the Lord is fearful and terrible for the hardened sinner. It's his judgment. But it's glorious and wonderful, wonderful for the repentant man. It's his salvation. If you recall, in Joel chapter 1, uh, we, looked, we looked at a locust plague. And it was a locust plague judgment that, he saw, he, that Joel saw in the past, and it devastated the land. But then the first half of chapter 2, Joel looked forward to a terrible northern army that would ravage the country. It mirrored the locust plague, but it was even more ruinous. But then, when Israel seemed doomed, there was a merciful and gracious call by God for the people to return and be healed. You can see in Joel chapter 2, verse 12, you can look at it. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping, with mourning. You see, God longed for his people. And they, and they in responding to God's love, the people returned. God repaid the northern army for their brutality, and he restored the years, the years that the locusts had stolen. Turning to a merciful God, this led to the complete reversal of the judgment of God's people. God avenged his enemies, and he restored all that was lost. This is the day of the Lord, but this is not the climactic end. God goes farther, and that is what we're considering today. Let me read to you chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions." Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. This is how God came to his people. Advent is the season in which we are now in. And it's about God coming. Advent means the coming of Christ. It is a a time of longing for God's presence. And the celebration of Emmanuel, God with us, is about this time. But... As we know today, the coming of Christ was not the end. Actually, it was but the entryway of God coming to his people. To understand Joel chapter 2, 28 through 32, I want to take you on a bit of a tour, a tour through time. And I want you to see how Joel, I want you to see how Joel and Christmas and community are linked. So you might be grateful for the age in which we live today. God, he created the world. And he created it in relational unity. The relationships between God and people were perfect. The connection between God and God, man and God, and people and people was in a perfect state. But as you know, sin entered the world through Adam and Eve. Relationships were shattered both vertically and horizontally. As such, Adam and Eve faced the judgment of God. And their banishment, you know, from the garden 
characterize this loss of community. We can look back to that time and we can see our community. We can understand why today, we're, when we would like to have a Christmas feast, it can turn into the Christmas fight. And we know why today, we, at the day after Christmas, we can often have the blues because things didn't work out relationally like we had liked them to look. But thankfully, the biblical story does not end in judgment as it could. God's will is for restoration, to unite his people in community. So God graciously came to individuals. Think of Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God visited one here and one there. But humanity on a whole, humanity on a whole was apart from the Spirit of God. And it wasn't until Moses came that God talked to a man as he talks to a friend. Moses was to stand as an intermediary between God and his people. Israel's unholiness kept them from God's direct response. But even Moses could not remain in the fullness of God's spirit. For when God passed by, Moses had to be hidden so he didn't see God's face. And when the cloud of glory filled the tent, the people's tent, the tabernacle, Moses had to remain outside. Moses had a closer relationship with God than any other, but it was still flawed. And sadly, this relationship with God actually, his close relationship with God actually separated him from other people. He was left alone to lead because of God's presence in his life. Moses, longing for the Spirit, is best understood when he said this. It was in Numbers eleven twenty nine. Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his Spirit on them. Moses' statement concisely identifies what was really missing, a community filled with, God's, with God and God's Spirit in his people. So as the years passed, the pattern repeated as the Spirit fell on one individual here and one individual there, but not on the whole nation. Think of the judges. Think of Samuel. Think of Saul and think of David. And then the Spirit rested in one place. It wasn't over all the earth. King Solomon was built the, his temple, the God's temple in Jerusalem to replace the tabernacle, and it was magnificently filled with the Spirit. But this wondrous occurrence was actually not the start of something wonderful or wondrous. It was something, it was the high point of Israel history. The high point from which the nation fell into more communal problems, political turmoil and deep idolatry. And it's at this time where we come near to Joel. The prophets of old enter our story. And their messages were very similar. It says, judgment is coming for sin. And in one warning, I, I think it's one of the saddest pages in the Bible, Ezekiel envisions the spirit and the glory of God departing the temple and the land. The people's greatest need fulfilled, but it was lost. But the prophets weren't just about judgment. They spoke of hope for the future. God, through the prophets, promised the Spirit would one day rest on all, forming this Spirit-filled community for which they long. Listen to what, these, what the prophets said. I'm going to list three of them. Isaiah. Isaiah spoke of a day when God would pour out his Spirit to create a flourishing new community of righteousness and peace in which the people would declare that the Lord alone is their Lord. This is Isaiah 32 and 44. And Ezekiel, the one who envisioned the Spirit departing the temple, he foretold that God's Spirit would fill all the individual hearts of God's people, men and women, enabling them to obey God's commandments from their hearts. 
This is Ezekiel 36. And Joel, our prophet, what does he extol? Well, look at verses 28 and 29. He proclaimed the prophetic work of the Spirit, the direct experience of God's people with the miraculous power of God, prophesying and seeing visions and dreams. And not just one or two individuals, but it says all people. The all is emphasized. It's, look at all ages. There's young and old. There's all genders, boys and girls, and all social classes, masters and servants. The people, they longed for a spirit-filled community, and God promised it. But when would it come? When would it come? Hundreds of years passed from the time of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Joel. And God's people experienced more separation rather and more loneliness, unlike ever before. So when would this time come? And this is where our tour takes us to Christmas. This is how Christmas is important to the story of Joel. Over 500 years after the Spirit had departed, God visited his people. A baby was born in Israel, Jesus. God took on human flesh and became a man. And listen to this. He was full of the Spirit and like any, unlike any before him. And he manifested the Spirit, obeying God from the heart, like Ezekiel said. Assembling a community of people, the church, like Isaiah said, manifesting miraculous works of God, like Joel. And Jesus offered the Spirit to his followers. Do you remember what Jesus said? He said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And John clarified what he said. He says, Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is John 7. The shock is that God with us, Emmanuel, would be glorified and bring the Spirit, but it would be through judgment. For his people to be filled with the Spirit of God, judgment must come first. Notice in the verses how judgment is mixed with salvation in verses 30 to 32 of Joel chapter 2. There's ominous language in verses 30 and 31. Blood and fire, smoke and darkness. These are words of judgment. And they're, but they're followed by promises of escape and salvation. The advent of Jesus, God becoming a man, did not automatically allow the Spirit to fill all people. The problem of sin, man's unholiness, must be first rectified. Jesus was born to die, to face God's judgment on behalf of God's people, to die sacrificially so his people might be saved from judgment. Jesus faced fire, the fire and smoke of God's judgment. His blood was spilled. He experienced the dark separation and loneliness which sin causes so his people might be saved. Therefore, as Joel says in verse 32, look what he says, all who call upon the name of the Lord, Jesus, shall be saved. So Emmanuel, God with us, died, but then he rose again in glory. And when he rose again, his followers were told to wait for a gift. I bet you can think what that gift is. And that gift came 50 days later after Jesus' death on the day of Pentecost. And we find that event in Acts chapter 2. 
please turn in your Bibles just quickly to Acts chapter 2. It is the fifth book in your New Testaments. The fifth book in your New Testaments. Acts chapter 2. Look there. This was a profoundly monumental day. For the long-standing promises of the prophets were fulfilled. The promises of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Joel. The intense longing of the people was met by God. Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, is the day when God came to all his people. The Spirit fell upon all who believed in Jesus. The rivers of living water that Jesus promised were fulfilled. The community of the Spirit-filled people, his church, was established. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 16. Peter says, speaking about Joel, he says, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then he quotes Joel. He says, In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male and male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter says this was fulfilled. Joel's words are judgment mixed with salvation. Jesus faced the judgment so all who call upon him might have salvation, to be filled with the Spirit and reunited to God as God wills. So unlike Joel, we live in a time in which the Spirit of God indwells each and every believer. Joel looked forward to this time, but we look back. We are exceedingly, we're exceedingly blessed to live in this time where we can have intimate fellowship with the living God. We live in a time where Moses, the, the time in which Moses longed for, it's been fulfilled. God doesn't just dwell in a select few, but all of God's people. Friends, this is a season to give thanks. And it thanks for such a wonderful and inexpressible gift. And we're going to gather on Christmas Eve to celebrate this much longed for gift. Stephen's going to preach for second, from 2 Corinthians 9.15. What does it say? It says, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. We invite you all to come for that time. But today, if you are not a Christian, don't delay. Consider this great gift. You can be intimately connected to the living God, our own creator. By calling on the name of the Lord, this means that you believe in Jesus, that he died and that he rose again, and that he is Lord, he is master of your life. And in so doing, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There is no greater gift that you can have at Christmas. Please talk to myself or any of the members of this church. We'd love to share about that gift with you. Don't delay. And church family, I want us to be a grateful people. We live in a marvelous time. Many before us did not have the same privileges that we do today. God himself has chosen to dwell among us in our hearts, in our community. And he has given this community of spirit-filled people, our church family. And you, as a spirit-filled believer, you know the inner joy of knowing God, 
of hearing his still, small voice, of having connection with God, even when all others fail you. You also know the deep intimacy of being with other Spirit-filled believers, this marvelous community we have. And you know how sometimes those who are in Christ, who have the Spirit of them, they're closer to you than your very own family. This is the experience of the Spirit-filled church, the Jesus' assembly that began at Pentecost. And we are a grateful people. Now, with such good news, it seems like that would be the end. But you haven't seen anything yet. Let's read chapter 3. Flip back to Joel chapter 3. For behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel. Because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you're paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold, and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters to the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabians, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I'm a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the wine press is full. The vats overflow, for their, their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened. The stars withdraw their shining The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers shall never again pass through it. In that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk. And the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations. I will, that I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion." This is the prophetic word of the Lord. Many of us um, drive around our neighborhoods this time of year, and we go with friends and family, and we check out the 
Christmas lights, turn on some Christmas tunes on our radio, and we go from house to house. In our neighborhood, um, many people decorate some pretty nice displays, but there is one guy, he takes it to another level. When we drive around our, our neighborhood and showing the lights, we say, well, that one's nice, but you haven't seen anything yet. There's a guy, and he, he starts decorating, I don't know why, but after Halloween, and he finishes after Thanksgiving. And he doesn't just decorate his house. He decorates his house and his neighbor's two houses and his whole cul-de-sac. And each year, he tends to, like, one-up himself with something else. And his house, you can kind of see it as a beacon of light in the neighborhood. So we just say, wait. You haven't seen anything yet. Joel chapter 3 is God's way of saying, you haven't seen anything yet. But it's much more spectacular than Christmas lights. The founding of the church at Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit that Joel foretold, ushered in a new era of the Spirit. But it did not usher in a community, the community found that we found back in the Garden of Eden. There were still problems in this world. There is still a longing for better times. The Spirit-filled church has, the, has a blessing any, any, unlike any other, but we haven't seen anything yet. Joel's oracle depicts the climax of the day of the Lord. It is the point in which that whirlpool in your tub reaches its maximum intensity. The many precursors to this day are brought to a sharp point. It is the final climactic battle of God over the world. It is the completion of judgment and salvation. In the first half of this chapter, God's enemies are vanquished. We see this. And in the second half, God reveals this glorious future of, for his people. Verse 1 kind of begins with a summary of purpose. God is going to restore, you can see it in verse 1, the fortunes of his people in this ultimate sense. They have been scattered in judgment, but he is now gathering them to be with him forever. Their destiny is to be in his presence. And then in verses 2 through 16, we, you can envision, God envisions how he will clear the way for his people's restoral. Look at verses 2 and 3, beginning in 2 and 3. God gathers all the nations, and he gathers to a place called the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat means Yahweh judges. The Lord, he condescends, he stoops to judge, and he goes down into the valley of this world to judge on behalf of his people. And his judgment, it isn't emotionally disconnected, but it's deeply personal. Notice how he says, my people you have scattered, and my land you have divided. God was personally disparaged because his boys and girls had been devalued. They were sold for mere trifles. It says prostitution, sexual favors, and drunken exploits. In the, the sixth grade, when I was a boy, uh, there was a boy named Charlie, and he bullied me. He didn't beat me down, but he intimidated me, and he embarrassed me. And due to his size, I was really helpless to um, you know, defend myself, and his antics went on for over a year. I remember several times going home and crying and just being upset, not, not knowing what to do. But one day, my salvation came. My neighbor's older brother, Aaron, drove us home. And it happened that Charlie was walking along the side of the road. And I said, that's the boy who picks on me. And in a way that only an older brother can do, Aaron swung his truck to the side of the road, and he ran out and he grabbed Charlie by the shirt, and he threw him into the ditch. And he said, it's a true story. 
he told him, if you pick on Phil ever again, you have to deal with me. And from that day, never did Charlie pick on me. Judgment came to Charlie, and salvation came to me in that ditch. Part of salvation of God's people is judgment of his people's enemies. Their enemies are his enemies. He goes into the ditch, into the valley, to bring justice. In verses 4 through 8, we jump from the general to the specific. In the same way that Charlie represented my enemy, Israel had enemies. And we don't know the specific reasons why Tyre and Sidon, it says, and Philistia are called out. But we knew, though, that their crime was that they scattered God's people to faraway lands. We see that in verse 6. And we see that this like, continued theme we're considering of dividing God's people from God is judge. God brings retribution on these nations, and he does that by sending them far away. We see that in verse 8. They're sent to faraway lands. And then in verses 9 through 16, we return to this global perspective. It says that all the nations are to gather. They're called to prepare for war. The mighty men we see in verse 9 are called. And then the simple farmers in verse 10 are told to come, and they're told to take their tools of farming and convert them into weapons. And then they're all told, they're all told in verse 11, to hurry, to get there quickly. And what are they coming to? They're coming to be judged in the valley, in the valley of Yahweh judges, Jehoshaphat. God will sit and judge. And this clash, we can see, won't be a cliffhanger. It isn't that we don't know who's going to win. There won't be any suspense. The end has already been determined. God will not even need to rise. His victory comes while seated down. And then in verse 13, it harkens back to this imagery of the harvest fields that were plundered in Israel's history. We think of the locusts. We think of the armies that trampled the fields. But these fields, rather than trampled, are ripe. And there's much harvest, vast number of grapes, and they fill the vats to the brim. And like a great harvest, these multitude of evil nations, they're like a great crop, and they're being prepared for the picking, taken down in mass quantities, and it just was simple tools they're taken down. Then verse 14, look what it says. It says, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. This is the climactic day of the Lord. It's not an evangelistic rally. People aren't making choices at this time. This is the day when God makes the decision. He makes the verdict, and the verdict in this case is guilty. There will be no escape. Time will have run out. All previous judgment will be as if the, the world hadn't seen anything yet. The first advent of Jesus was for salvation. But a promised second advent, a second coming, is coming. In his coming, he will render judgment. And as a great conquering king, he'll come as the great conquering king of Matthew 25 and the righteous judge of Revelation 20. And there is urgency in turning to Christ because no one knows that day. Do not wait if you have not considered Christ and turned to him. When he speaks, there will be judgment. And it will be as if, as, if, it'll be as if creation is being undone. Look at verse 15. Sun and moon darken, stars forgetting to shine. And then in verse 16, he roars at his prey. The nations will melt like a, a lion roars. The lion of the tribe of Judah, of Jesus, he roars in judgment over his enemies. The selfsame enemies of his people. I hope you're seeing it. 
judgment and salvation are a couple. Because of sin, judgment must fall in order that salvation might come. God judges his enemies so his people can be safe. Without such righteous judgment, his people would never be free from the effects of evil, and God's justice, his justice would be always called into question for eternity. So as much as it is, it's hard to talk about judgment. It makes me uncomfortable. We would be very disappointed if God did not judge. And it'd be, it's crazy talk that we would think he wouldn't. For God will judge rightly. Now this might be new to your ears, but judgment and salvation are a couple. God saves through judgment. Look at the transition at the end of verse 16. After the judgment comes salvation. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. In the midst of the world of judgment, the people of God will be brought with safety and security. The reason God's people are safe, and that brings us back to the child of Christmas, Jesus. We must never forget that Jesus was judged so that we might be saved. Man's only refuge from judgment is to be hidden in Christ. Jesus, he condescended. He stooped and became man. He entered the ditch, but he came not to judge sinners, but to be judged on behalf of sinners. If that were not true, every one of us would have to stand in the valley of Jehoshaphat, the valley of judgment, and we would be faced with Jesus' second coming as he judged his enemies. But we don't have to because Jesus was judge. No one has seen anything yet. The judgment of God will be great. But since Christ hides us, we also haven't seen anything yet with regard to salvation. There is so much more to come. And that's what we get to look at next. Look at verse 17. We begin another tour. And we leave the valley. And where are we heading to? We're heading now to a mountain. We travel to Mount Zion. I want to show you a tour here. The view from this mountain is nothing you have seen before. It would be like comparing the view from South Hill to the view from the top of Mount Rainier. Nothing. Strip malls versus gorgeous. Mount Zion is Jerusalem. But in this context, it is the perfected form. It is the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem in which God dwells with his people. Here God is Lord, and his spirit-filled people joyfully know him as Lord, as Master. And they assemble joyfully and obey his commandments from the heart. And unlike our world, in this place, the stranger is excluded. Sin is ab- absent. Revelation twenty-one twenty-seven tells us about this. It says, But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Nothing abhorrent hinders this community. It is a quiet, quite peaceful view. And then the second stop on our tour, not just the view, but the environment is like nothing you've seen before. And only poetic words can describe the quality of this place. Look at verse 18. Dripping with sweet wine, flowing with milk, abounding with flowing waters. The milk takes us back in our minds, biblical history, to the promised land, traveling from slavery to freedom. The sweet wine speaks of luxury and prosperity, and the abundant waters speak of the supply of the essential needs that anybody would need in that that culture and time. But even further, 
It says water springs forth in a spring from the house of God, the temple. And this makes us think of Jesus and the living water of the Spirit that he promised. He is the living water for which we long. And Revelation 22 speaks of how this will occur and describes his environment. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of water of the water of life, bright as crystal, crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the streets and of the city. Also on either side of the street, the tree of life with its twelve fruits, yielding its fruit each month. No longer will be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see him face to face, and his name will be on their foreheads. The eventual death of everything is like, is that's our current life experience. Things wear out. You get a new toy at Christmas, it wears out. Organizations that we work in eventually fail. Stock prices will eventually fall. People, all people die. But the environment prepared for God's people is unlike anything we have ever seen. Here, life bursts forth. Healing is the norm. Growth is the standard. So we see the view and the environment, but on our tour we have one more spot. The inhabitants of this place are like nothing we've seen before. The last closing verses, the last three verses, they draw a contrast for us to really focus on a point actually in the middle. It says, first, we see the uninhabited desolation and wilderness of God's enemies, and that's con- contrasted with the Lord inhabiting Zion. It's actually going to, if you want to look at it closely, this is the top verse, verse 19, and the end of verse, beginning of verse 19, end of 20. And then there's a second comparison. And it's the shedding of innocent blood with the Lord avenging blood. This is the end of verse 19 and the beginning of 21. And then what, what the Bible's telling us, right in the middle is the last piece. And right in the middle, it pinpoints our view to this place of purity and justice. And it says it's inhabited by the Lord forever. The coming spirit at Pentecost was monumental. But that event was not the climax. Sin was not eradicated. Wickedness was not ended. Loneliness and separation were abated, but they were not eradicated. With Joel, we look forward to a time unlike we have ever seen before, where the view and the environment and the eternal habitation with God are mind-blowing. Our tour for this day should bring us great comfort because this time is coming and this time is everlasting. Christians, we live in an era for which we should be grateful. But we rightfully long for more. But as you wait, there is a job for each of you. There's a job for you. On the great day of the Lord, the church will be with Christ bodily. But now, the church is his body. And we are to be the physical expression by which people are touched by Christ. Part of the loneliness of this age is that we're physical beings. We need a hug. We need someone to stand beside us. We need touch. The church, Jesus' community, is commissioned to embrace the world. We are called to be his hands and his feet. I saw that touch out there. Way to go. We are called to be the hands and feet of Jesus to each other. People first need Jesus, but they need the indwelling spirit of Christ within his people. There are youth in this church that could use your touch, come alongside. 
There are lonely members who could need your encouragement in their lives to stand beside them. You have friends who need you. As a Spirit-filled disciple of Christ, you have much to offer because the Spirit's power is in you. Don't let life pass you by. Please, like, reach out and touch someone to help them. We conclude our service this evening, not this evening, this morning, by singing Joy to the World. It's been so dark, it feels like it's evening all the time. We conclude this service this morning by singing Joy to the World. And I just learned something about Joy to the World. Pay attention to this. Joy to the World, did you know this? It wasn't written as a Christmas song, but it was written for Advent. Isaac Watts, he probably wrote more hymns than anybody else, he wrote Joy to the World, and it was a reflection on Psalm 98. It was the time when the Lord, the King, judges in righteousness. So Joy to the World is about Advent, but it's not about the first Advent. It's about the second Advent, the second coming of Christ, the great day of the Lord. So like Joel, he spoke these words, and they are very applicable to us on Christmas. Joy to the World is actually speaking about the second coming as well, but that song is right for Christmas as well. For without the first coming, there would be no second coming. Because Christ died and rose again, we joyfully expect his second coming. So let me pray, and I want you all to stand and sing with joy as we're thankful for his first coming. We're thankful we live in this age of the Spirit within us, but we're hopeful and longing for the day of his second coming. Let's stand, I'll pray, and then we'll sing joy to the world together. Lord God, we do wait for that day. We know that you've been so gracious to us now, and we want to be a grateful people, thankful for your indwelling in our lives and in our church and our community. And Lord, we long for that day when you return, when you will reign as king over all the earth. Well, heaven and nature will sing of you at that time, Lord, that all creation will be restored. So this morning, we sing with grateful hearts of joy to you. In Jesus' name, amen.